Welcome to the eighth episode of the podcast. This is your proprietor, Tony Ortega, coming to you from an undisclosed location deep inside the interior of the Earth's crust, otherwise known as the Underground Bunker. This week, we heard from an old friend who had found a remarkable artifact from Scientology watching history. We're talking about Patty Moyer, who sent us a video she found that had been shot in 2008 at the height of the anonymous phenomenon. The video shows a presentation that Patty gave in Boston discussing a wide variety of Scientology's controversies. We were happy to post the video, but it reminded us that if there's one person who deserves more recognition for their contributions in this field, it's Patty. So we're very glad that we got this opportunity to talk with her. And we think you'll see why Patty truly is one of the greats. Patty, uh, thank you so much for joining me here at the Underground Bunker Podcast. How are you doing? Oh, it's my pleasure to be here with you. I actually uh, miss seeing you and talking to you like the old days. Well, we're going to get into that. Uh, and there's a lot of stuff to cover. I mean, first of all, thank you. You found a video right during the height of the anonymous mm -hmm. phenomena. You gave a talk in Boston. You have relocated that video. I went through it. It's fascinating how much material you've covered. And that's given uh, me an excuse to to have you on the podcast. And I just I have a lot of different thoughts about this because you, you know, you and I go back so long and mm -hmm. and I know you in in a couple of different ways, but it it, it it's disappointing to me that more people don't know about you. I think mm -hmm. Um, this is one of the things that I, I have done a poor job telling people about the amazing contributions you have made to this field. Okay. So I want to get into that a little bit and, okay. and, and, you know, we'll go from the beginning, but, um, yeah, you, th there's so much that people should know about what you went through. And then, um, the way that I got to know you was, I don't know, was it 10 years ago? Yeah. You were having these fantastic barbecue blowouts in your backyard in Connecticut every summer. Yep. And it was a wonderful way for people to get to meet each other. That's where I first met Chuck Beatty for the first time, uh, Professor Steve Kent, Denise Brennan. Um, so what a wonderful thing that was. Yeah, well, that was, the, that was the purpose of those. It was to... Back then, the, the real purpose of those SP parties was to network, to get people together so that we can remove or just close down this horrible cult. And I knew that once people hooked up in real life and talked to each other, then they were going to go back home and they were going to make plans and share information. And it was, it was just something that I felt was important in order. And plus it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. You did a great job on those. And I know there were a lot of work for you. Yep. Uh, but, but that, that's, that was around 2011 or 10 or something. Yeah, let's let's go right. way back. Let's. I mean, your involvement is so interesting, and I think most people don't know it very well. And I haven't written very much. Let's let's start at the very beginning. Tell me quickly, how did you get into Scientology? In 1973, I ended up going to the Narconon program in New London, Connecticut. I had recently started using heroin, some hard drugs, and decided that wasn't a good idea, and uh, knocking on was available, and I went down there, and I think the comm course was the original course. It was 50 bucks, and um, basically, it was all Scientology material. They didn't even have a, 
They didn't have any sort of knocking on books back then. Uh, we just used straight Scientology uh, bulletins and policy letters. It was packed up with the name knocking on on the top. And um, I got hooked. I, I got uh, involved with the knocking on, and it was just a very short jump into becoming a Scientologist because actually it was promoted that this was Scientology just in a, in a different form, different type of organization. And then what? where were you involved in Scientology after that? Well, I became uh, the director of Knocking On after a few years. Oh, I was so qualified, as you could tell. All I had behind me was uh, Hubbard stuff, no nothing other than a high school education. Um, from there, I was recruited into the Guardian's office, and I was um, placed as the director of rehab for New England, which controlled all of the front groups for um, education and drugs. So the ASI, Applied Scholastics was under it, the Apple Schools, Knocking On, um, any sort, anything that dealt with um, those front groups that promoted the tech, I was in charge of running. And we had a few of them. We had a Knocking On Boston, one in New London. There was an ASI in Boston, an ASI in Connecticut, and an Apple School. And then, oh, two Apple Schools. One was in Connecticut, run by uh, Tony Triambianis, who ended up being the head of uh, OSA for the, for the uh, Northeast, no, for the whole East Coast, rather. And um, and there was one, there was an Apple School in Milton, Mass, or it ended up becoming Adelphi. So I ran all these groups with, you know, they had to report statistics to me and any problems, and I go in there and do inspections, and it was totally controlled by the Guardian's office. And, and what year would that have been that you were doing that, that for the Guardian's was, office? That's going to be 1980-81. Okay, so after the raid, after yeah. the prosecutions, but before the Guardian's office had been dismantled. Exactly. And just so people understand, I mean, the Guardian's office was the spy wing of Scientology. It had a lot of different functions. Um, but definitely the spying and the, and the dirty uh, tricks operations were handled by the Guardian's office. Absolutely. Invest was right down the hall from us. Um, it had three or four staff. You, uh, even being part of the GO, you couldn't even go into that office. It was so tightly controlled unless you were invited in. Um, so the way it would work is, is uh, Invest would get all this information and it would either hand it off to the other parts of um, the, the Guardian's office, which was the legal department and the public affairs or public relations. So they would take care of um, that part of the problem of maybe they're going to sue somebody or just PR the crap out of them in a bad way. And invest is short for investigation. So exactly. I mean, this was, this was the Guardian's office in charge of spying on people. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I remember this guy, Warren Frisky. He was in the, the Guardian's office invest. I remember him like every night coming in with black garbage bags and finally I figured out he was stealing somebody's trash but, but I didn't know what was going on at first but I would see that all the time you know just walking through the hall, hallways with somebody's trash I was like what's going on in there well, then did you did you subsequently see the Guardian's office get taken apart and replaced by the Office of Special Affairs OSA yes I had just I think just left the Guardian's office at that point. I was out of I was out of there, and um, 
basically, I, I did my two and a half year contract, but I said, uh, you know, I wanted to start a family and I didn't want to do it while I was on staff. So I, I did see a lot of what was going on. Um, the Guardian's office was, in fact, the dirty tricks department. They, uh, when they changed over to the Office of Special Affairs, it was really just in, in name only. I mean, everything else still applied. It was just, it was a, it was a big lie. They just, it was a PR thing because the Guardian's office had created that huge flap of investigating the U.S. government and they got caught and they got exposed and, and some high, uh, Mary Sue Hubbard, Ron's wife and a few others went to jail. And so they had to change it over to something more acceptable for the public. So they became the Office of Special Affairs in name only. Right. And and just going back to the story you've told us so far, I just want to point out two things that people should should hold on to. And that is that all of these efforts for the public like rehab, uh, um, the curriculum in schools, um, they, all these front groups were behind the scenes being run by Scientology's secret police, Scientology's spy wing. Mm -hmm. And that there's, and also that as it happened to you, that part of the function of something like the rehabs Narconon is to bring new people in to Scientology. So this is a recruitment effort. It's a way to infiltrate uh, things like schools and it's all being run by Scientology's controlling interests. Yes, absolutely. So then, so you stayed with Narconon after that? Were you still running the Narcon? And where was that one located? Well, the one I was originally at was in New London, Connecticut, right here. But then when I went into the Guardian's office, that was out of Boston. They, uh, it was out of the Boston org. So I moved to Boston at that point and stayed up there um, while on the GO staff. And uh, after I left the GO, I was off staff. Well, I never returned to staff, but I did end up being brought in, let's say, mid to late 80s. I got brought in as what's called an OSA volunteer into the um, INVEST or the, uh, what do they call it? Not invest, but, um, but it's the, it, oh, intelligence. I was brought into the intelligence office for volunteer work um, because I they considered me so fully indoctrinated and I was not a high risk to, uh, to go off and, and join the SPs at all. I was fully and thoroughly brainwashed and they liked it. And, uh, and so I, I got to work with OSA on, on a volunteer basis. I don't know, for maybe 10, 12 years. I'm not even sure how long I did it for. Wow, so a decade of helping OSA yeah. with its with its spying. Absolutely. I mean, it was, it was I, some of the things, at first they would put me on something was ODC, which is over data collection. So there were no computers back then. So I would have to go to courthouses and go through probate records and go through civil suits and go through criminal suits with a, with a name and try to collect anything I can, uh, you know, bankruptcy court, whatever. If I was given a name, I was given a checklist with all these places I would have to go and collect information, marriage records, divorce records, whatever. I'd have to complete that person, then I'd be given another person. And I did would do something like that for a while. And then they had me infiltrate what they call a um, 
a squirrel group. This was a group run out of Massachusetts with a bunch of, um, some of them were ex-Scientologists and uh, some of them were, would be considered like a free zone back then, but that's not what they called it. It was just a bunch of people practicing Scientology um, outside of the churches. Uh, Independently. Yeah. Independently. And so they flipped out, the church flipped out over this and they wanted these groups closed. So I spent two years in this group um, collecting information about who they were and what they did and where they met and, um, you know, just so it was awful. But I did this because I thought I was doing the right thing at the time, which is no excuse. I mean, it's really despicable behavior. But at the time I did it, I thought it was, you know, I, I was the best thing for doing did this. Did this did this group that you infiltrate ever realize that that's what you were there for? Oh yeah, because the church because after two years, they blew my cover. They, I mean, they really. It was like all of a sudden I come in one day to find out what I'm supposed to be doing next, and I was told that RTC sent a, a letter to um, to this woman who runs the group, and basically everything they said was. The only person who would know this information was me. Oh, so, wow. So I'm like, what is, I'm like, why? And I guess they just figured, I don't know what they figured. I never understood, but it was, it's constantly, that's the basic craziness and wonderful, wonderful craziness of Scientology is they will always, no matter what, do something stupid and to just ruin everything. They, they just can't, they can't have it so that it just works out. Like someone has to screw it up. And it's just part of the tech. And it's what makes it sometimes hysterically funny. But And then these people that you were instructed to go down and dig up records on, were these targets? They, they were targets. They were somebody who was somehow hurting Scientology in their opinion. Maybe they spoke out against them. Maybe they were a reporter, an investigator, or maybe it's a judge that's gonna be coming up on a case or a lawyer they're interested in hiring, or an opposition lawyer, anybody that they needed to know everything about. Because the whole purpose of that is once you know what's going on with this guy and his connections, you can you will definitely, in their belief, find criminal activity in their past, which once you expose or threaten to expose, they'll shut up or go away. So that's wow. what I was looking for. I was looking for dirt. You know, maybe a dirty divorce, or, you know, something. I was looking for dirt on the guy, or at least with over data collection, it gives you the basis to now go into what's called covert data collection, which is where you would infiltrate or make friends with somebody, um, something on that matter, so that you can get even more information about the person. Wow. And you weren't the only one, right? About You must have known about some other volunteers that were also... Oh, no, you never know about other volunteers because part of the whole OSA thing is the need to know. Right. So I could be working on one project and somebody else I, that is in the church could be working on the same project, but we'll never talk because we only talk to our handler, the person who is gonna get all the information. So no, it was, I never worked with anybody or was told. I sort of knew because I would see them going in and out of the office, but I would never ask them what they were up to because that would be against, definitely against the rules. You're not supposed to Right. That's supposed to know stuff like that. Only what you know. Wow. Mm. So then after 10 or 12 years of doing that work, what changed? Well, 
um, <laughs> I, uh, right around, it's going to be 1999-2000, uh, Mary Frances Newey, who ran OSA in Boston at the time, uh, ran their invest unit, called me up and wanted me to, um, for the first thing she wanted me to do was she wanted me to call Bob Mitten's wife and tell her that um, Stacy, this woman that uh, I can't remember her last name was, that was dating Bob Mitten. Stacy Young. Stacy Young had been in her house and slept in her bed and just try to create this um, situation for the wife where she would hate her husband. And I refused. I said, no, I'm not doing that. That's awful. I, you know, I'm like, who does stuff like this? Not realizing how bad they are. You know, even me, who's doing the awful stuff, didn't realize to what extent they'll go. And I said, no. Um, so then what they asked me to do was go to, oh, the, the Lisa McPherson Trust in Clearwater had just recently opened up with Bob Mitten. I guess they had been open for a month or two. And Bob Mitten at the time was the number one SP in the universe to Scientology. They were just 24-7, this guy. He was covered every inch of his life. And they said he set up this group and he has a mission statement. And the only way you'll be able to see it is if you go onto this group called Alt-Religion Scientology, which is a Usenet group. It's, it still exists, but I don't know how often it's used. Um, and it's about Scientology. And Bob Mitten has printed or posted there his mission statement. I needed to read this so then I could start making phone calls to the Lisa McPherson Trust in an attempt to tie up their phone lines with imaginary cults of other sorts, you know, saying my sister was involved in Wiccan or something like that. Um, so, but they wanted me to read this mission statement. Well, boy, that was a mistake. When I got there, I not only read the mission statement, I started reading everything. <laughs> well, let me, and that's a great point. Let me, let me just back out a little bit for some of the newer readers of the bunker who may not know this history. Bob Mitten was this wealthy businessman from New England who, for whatever reason, I've ne I guess I should learn this history, but for whatever reason, became very interested in Scientology and its controversies and its abuses. Mm -hmm. And so he, uh, and he was very concerned about the Lisa McPherson matter. Lisa McPherson, a member of Scientology who had died at the Fort Harrison Hotel in December uh, 1995. And to help expose that situation, Bob Minton spent millions of his own money um, helping to get word out about Scientology's abuses. Right. And one way he did that was he created a group called the Lisa McPherson Trust. He actually rented a storefront there in Clearwater. People from around the country came who, who had been criticizing Scientology, wanted to be part of that effort. People like Jeff Jacobson and Mark uh, from Arizona and Mark Bunker from Southern California. Um, it, you know, just all flocked to this effort being put together by this wealthy businessman, Bob Mitten, who was a really fascinating person. I, I got to talk to him one time. And this was, you know, back in, God, it would have been 1997 or 8, I talked to him. Anyway, um, then, uh, yes, because he was the, the focus of so much of this effort and was concentrating all this criticism about Scientology, 
he came under a hellacious multiple layered Scientology operation <laughs> to try to destroy him. And it turned out he had some business dealings in Nigeria that were questionable and Scientology dug those up. And, and, and then you were asked to do this one thing, which was that he had started this new relationship. That was definitely something Scientology was trying to go after. Right. Um, and they made the mistake of asking you to go look at ARS, which at <laughs> that time was, you know, yeah, a Usenet, early internet on the Usenet, and uh, where all kinds of amazing information was coming out about Scientology every day. This was the place to be uh, in that period from like 95 to, to, to 2000. And you went to go do this, and they didn't realize that they were basically giving you the key to the kingdom. That's right. <laughs> I mean, what a what a mistake! I I was like, once I got there, I was just fascinated. I was like, oh my god, what is all this stuff? Because I worked my my thinking at the time was, well, I work for OSA, and what OSA handles is and theta, which is interbulated theta or bad news, bad things that happen, just upsetting, you know, disappointing, upsetting things in life. So. As an OSA person, I thought, well, of course they're going to send me here because, you know, I'm used to dealing with, you know, really awful stuff, what OSA handles. And I get there and I start reading this stuff and I just become fascinated. And then I start posting there without OSA knowing it. Uh-oh. Yeah. I started posting for the first month and, oh, I was getting slammed by all these uh critics who just thought I was just, you know, they were just playing with me because I was just a, a cultist with Scientology thinking and they were trying to sort of, some of them were trying to debate with me, but others were just like hammering me what a jerk I was. And then there was this one woman, I believe her name was Katrina Parnell or Parmel. She was from somewhere in Scandinavia and she was an ex-Scientologist and she, I believe she was ex-Sea Org. And she answered one of my questions by telling me all about forced abortions. And I didn't believe at first. But she was so um, nice and so pleasant and so sweet in her communications to me that it shocked me. Because I thought these people were all going to just basically attack me and hammer me. And instead, she just produced some facts and was kind. And that started, whoa, what's going on here? Um, and I left. I had to quit because I thought I was definitely going to get in trouble. Even though I was posting, I, Scientology had no idea it was me because I was able to post through a group where they would hide my IP address so Scientology couldn't find me. Um, and I left there for a while and I continued to read all these criticisms. And then one day out of the blue, a um, this OT8 guy from Europe contacted me in an email and uh, he started basically explaining to me what Scientology was all a bunch of crap. And it came from an OT8, so it had some weight as I was considered myself a Scientologist at the time. Right, right. And uh, that opened even more doors. And all of a sudden, I started reading critical sites and um, critical information. 
And it was just, it was, I think I spent two weeks just at the computer, just calling for takeout and just like not moving from the computer. <laughs> Everything I could find. And at the end of that, I was really pissed off. I was really pissed off for having been what I considered at the time betrayed by Scientology, especially by Hubbard. And the more I read, the more I realized it was a con. And it took a while. I mean, it didn't happen immediately. It took me time to to get rid of it because my indoctrination was so, I mean, I was somebody probably people thought I would never leave. I was going to be the hardcore, would always be in Scientology type. And instead, I was really severely angry at these guys and realized what a bunch of bullies they were and, and, and how awful uh, Miscavige was and how awful Hubbard was. And I decided to, I hooked up with um, a bunch of critics, all were non-Scientologists. Uh, we had, they had with this uh, thing called IRC, Internet Relay Chat. This is again, old, old uh, internet stuff where you would get into these private groups and talk to people. And I got invited into a group of critics, including your lawyer, uh, Scott, <laughs> nice. um, Dave Turetsky, uh, a guy named Rob Clark, who was a harsh, very harsh critic back then, brilliant computer guy, um, the, a woman out in Arizona. Um, she goes by the nickname of uh, Muriel. Uh, I think Katie, there was a woman named Katie in there. She's a reporter for stuff up in Canada. So there were no Scientologists in this group or ex-Scientologists. And I, I got into this private group with them and they sort of helped me. And one of them actually came to my house and set up, um, set up my computer so I could post completely 100% anonymously that uh, I forget what the, it was called, but he, this guy Rob came and just hooked up my computer so that I could post without any worries that Scientology would ever figure out who I was. And I was able to do that for almost five years. Until and one thing that strikes me is, is, and this is maybe a lesson for people right around the same time that this Katrina was very nice to you and just wanted to give you some facts and it stunned you that she was so friendly about it right about that same time. Tori Chrisman That's right. was going through the exact same thing with Andreas Heldahl Lund. She exactly. had also, as an OSA volunteer, had gone on ARS and had done battle on behalf of the church. And then Andreas from Norway said to her, look, you, the way that you're responding to us, you're, you're, you're uh, you know, copying all this extraneous information and it's hard to read your arguments, if you do this, that, and the other thing, it'll be easier for us to see what you have to say. And she was absolutely floored yep. that somebody that she was trained was the absolute devil because, of course, Andreas Heldahl-Lund, right, Operation Clamp, right. would be so polite and helpful. And it, it just pulled the rug out from underneath her. Yep. So that's something to keep in mind, folks, that – Sometimes Scientologists need to just need to see that the people outside really are kind and helpful and it will stun them because they're trained to believe the opposite. Exactly. And it, it made a huge difference. I mean, she really, 
she really made the final breakthrough of like, holy cow, I can read, I got to read more about this because she is so nice. And, I, and I've told people, when people would come to me and say, you know, how do you get people out of Scientology? So, well, one of the things you don't do is make fun of them and bash them and call them names and make them feel stupid. I said, that just feeds into it. You know, don't do that. And some some people just don't get it. But but again, the kindness is is definitely was a factor for me. So now you're you're out in your mind and you've joined this IRC chat with people like Scott Pludic and Professor Dave Teresky at Carnegie Carnegie Mellon University, mm -hmm. who was one of the giants uh, yeah. in the early internet of putting Scientology's information online. So you're in this private chat with them, but you you can post anonymously. This next period, I think, is the period you should be known for, is that you did amazing work over the next several years getting out information about Scientology, and it drove them nuts because they didn't know who it was, right? Yes, it was wonderful. I mean, they, I used all their nasty um, invest tech against them. I, I, all the stuff they had taught me, you know, and now I'm posting anonymously. I am spending every time a, a new mag comes out, I am spending hours typing the completions list and I'm feeding it. I had hooked up with uh, Christy Watcher from, uh, what is that? Truth about Scientology. She's the one who keeps all those completion lists. Right. Well, I, she's the, she's the brains of that operation. And I was the brawn. I spent just literally thousands of hours typing up those names and getting them to her and working so that I really felt it important that in the future for journalists and even other Scientologists or anybody um, who was looking up a name, it would come up that this person was a Scientologist. And boy, that caused a whole lot of freak out. And let me just, let me just interrupt and say how huge that has been over the years for journalists, particularly for this journalist, Christy came up with an amazing idea and she maintains it to this day. And I know she gets a lot of flack. I know there are people constantly saying, take me down, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. What Scientology puts out a mountain of their own publications that they send to other Scientologists. So if you're a Scientologist, you're getting Source Magazine and Impact Magazine and, and all these magazines from Flag and the Free Winds and everything. And Scientology likes to post completions. What that means is when somebody finishes OT1 or OT3, they're published in there. Okay. Well, um, that's public information once those magazines get passed around. Exactly. And so, uh, you know, you and other people have collected those magazines and then done the hard work to type those completions into a database that you can access online. And they're still kept pretty, whoever's doing it, I don't know if it's you or some other people, they're still doing pretty fresh new information. Yeah, I know. That it's not me. I, I don't know who it is either. I'd like to know. But but whoever it is, they're, they're keeping up. And that's really It's invaluable because, you know, it's one thing um, when to to somebody might use some lingo about that might identify them as a Scientologist. But if there's a completion in a Scientology published magazine, that's pretty good evidence that they are clear or L11 or OT5. And, and that's how we know, for example, that, you know, Greta Van Suster and her husband, John Cole, have both done OT4, which I wrote about. That that's the, the, dr the bizarre drug one. 
Right. Um, so anyway, that's amazing work. And, and yes, you, I know you just did incredible amounts of labor to get that going. Oh yeah. And, and I really knew eventually it would pay off and it has, like you said. And the, the other thing I was doing back then um, is I was certainly posting articles from these Scientology magazines um, that was somehow sometimes useful because they would, uh, they would print a big win about how some, police officer in Cincinnati, Ohio, gave them an award. And then all of a sudden, critics are writing to this guy telling him, do you, do you realize what you've done? You know, so a lot of their plans were ruined and they couldn't use people again because once the critics had the information of who was allying or being uh, supporting Scientology, they would get an education and that ally would disappear. Um, so that was, and then the most fun thing I did was uh, obviously was uh, I was involved in leaking a lot of videos. Um, that was that was so much fun because that the internet was just the timing was perfect. All these crazy Scientology videos. I had people um, I had people who knew who I I was that was sending me this information. Um, trusted people and to get. Um, for instance, that song, what was it called? Uh, we Stand Tall. And the, we the, Stand Tall. Yeah, the funeral video and uh, a whole bunch of others I had. And I was just I was just making copies, CDs, and throw, just passing them out to everybody at that point. And, of course, I think you were involved in the single greatest Scientology video of all time, <laughs> which, of course, is the Tom Cruise interview. I think you were one of the people. I think there was a whole chain of people that were involved in getting that out to the world. Isn't that right? That's right. That was a, a group effort by a lot of different people because I, I just didn't know how to get it up on the internet. What had happened was, uh, what's that fellow's name? Uh, he wrote a book on Tom Cruise, an English guy, did the... Morton. Andrew, Andrew, Morton. Andrew Morton. He was going to be going on, I believe it was, uh, NBC morning show about the Tom Cruise book. And... I somehow through friends, I got to him and said, I got this video. Well, we, we, we finally got, what, whatever the circumstances are, we got that video up online so it could start being used. And as soon as Scientology saw it, that, that Tom Cruise video just shows him as what a lunatic he really is. And Scientology flipped and tried to get it taken down. And then all of a sudden it snowballed. Or, you know, somebody's trying to remove this video from the internet. So of course the entire internet community went up in arms and it was the biggest, another, like a big mistake that they just made. And, and anonymous grew out of that because they were fumed that they were trying to take down the video. And uh, it was, it was just so much fun back then. I mean, really it was, it was a blast doing that stuff. But, but I have to tell you, I want to tell you, yeah. part of my doing all this, my labor intensive, writing of the list was because I, I really felt that I needed to make amends. I really felt that I had done so much wrong to so many people that I needed to make it right. And the only way I could do that is by exposing them. And with the advice certainly of these people, these, these professional wogs, if you will, you know, <laughs> who, who they, they, you know, would talk to me and I would get ideas on what would be useful for them. Like, what do you need? You know, what can I provide? And I just did it. 
and I did it uh, happily because I was so upset at my behavior over the past 27 years um, and just needed to make it right. Well, you provided some incredible stuff, and I don't know that you got all the credit you deserve, but definitely, you know, with the with the Tom Cruise thing, Cruise had been kind of away from Scientology for a while. He got back into it. They really spun him up to be the most gung-ho Scientologist. So by 2004, David Miscavige uh, wanted to give him, to recognize him. So they had this very special event for him in October 2004. And the video is actually a 35-minute full right. video of, of, you know, all these things about Tom and how he's the greatest, you know, he gets a greater reach about Scientology than anyone else in the world. And then as part of that 35 minutes, there's this nine minute video of Tom in a turtleneck talking about what a privilege it is to be a Scientologist and KSW and SPs. It's just amazing. And it was only intended to be shown to that audience of Scientologists so they could see how he was one of them, right? right? So he's talking in the full code. He's he's trying to show other Scientologists how into it he is. It was never meant to be seen by the public. Mm -mm. So when it was then leaked four years later, um, it caused such a sensation. And then Scientology tried to squelch it. And that's when this loose association of people that called themselves anonymous that had been for a couple of years looking at various other things, found a cause and said, right. okay, that's it. We're gonna expose Scientology. And so the the video, the video, you and several others helped get it out to the world in January 2008. So by February 2008, Anonymous had put together sort of a program and started having protests in real life and we're doing these massive, you know, exposures of Scientology online. And right in that heady time is when you came out to give that talk in Boston. So help me understand how you went from like the most effective undercover leaker <laughs> in Scientology history to now suddenly you're on stage in front of people in public identifying yourself. How did that go? Well, I met the woman in charge of the, the Boston skeptics um, at one of the protests in Boston. I, uh, I, I don't remember her name now, but she was, uh, she was interested in me talking. And I had always, like you said, been sort of doing things anonymously or quietly behind the scenes and, and not taking credit for stuff, just making sure it gets out there. And I had to think about it. Like, do I want to go that public where I'm actually going to be talking about this stuff? And, and I said, yeah, let's do it. It's, it's going to be the next sort of the next level of stuff I did. And uh, I had I had so much fun doing that because just prior to that, about six months prior to that, uh, Dave Turetsky and I and a couple of others had been invited uh, by the AMA to give uh, talks at a uh, their convention in New Orleans. And it was very hush-hush and secret. We weren't on any of the... Uh, any of the invitations or any of the programming or what was planned for the day, it was all very quiet because they were terrified that the Scientologists were going to come in there and disrupt the meeting. And uh, Dave and I had both done um, PowerPoint presentations at the time. And mine was mostly on Sykes and, um, and my own experience in Scientology. And he had done some stuff that talked more about um, 
Scientology thinking. It was, it was, he's really, really had Scientology down. And um, my lecture, I talked to Dave and asked him to send me his his uh, PowerPoint. And I asked, you know, can I use some of this? And it was course. And, and I put it all together. So that's why it was so, so much material. Because some of that material came from Dave, who's just a genius as far as I'm concerned when it, when it came to, to putting together stuff real you know, he's a professor for crying out loud. You know, he's he's really, yeah. really good guy. And um, anyway, that was, after that, I started doing more and more public things. I spoke to a, uh, some TV program in Australia about knocking on, and I did this French uh, documentary for about knocking on, mostly about knocking on, because uh, they didn't have a lot of people talking and, and uh, back then. They were just, they were like still, even even, well, now, I'd say after Anonymous, the, everything broke open. You got all kinds of great critics coming in, people from, you know, from the top of the organization yeah. quitting. And it just it became a whole other scene. And I just didn't, I didn't know those guys. I was just, uh, you know, this little, you know, pers person over in Boston, just pulling information as I could. But those guys really cracked it all open after that. And it was, uh, I could sort of feel okay about sitting back and relaxing and just watching it happen. Well, yeah, I mean, what, Anonymous had so many good investigators and researchers, oh. but but maybe their most effective thing they did was they provided cover. And, you know, before Anonymous came along, if you in the 1990s or early 2000s, if you were an ex-Scientologist and you spoke up, I mean, it was scary. They, oh, yeah. they would focus everything on you. But when thousands of people around the world are all exposing Scientology at the same time, that provided some cover. Exactly. And you're right, in that period between 2008 and 2010, that, you know, think of all the people that came out at that time with books and, and talks, you know, Mark, from Mark Headley to right. Amy Scobie to the the, the, the the Tampa Bay Times series. And I really feel like Anonymous helped create that kind of a situation. Yes. Where sci Scientology just couldn't, harass everybody at the same time now now once you started speaking out publicly did did osa come after you well yes what happened was they were always trying to figure out who i was I, they were just i would get phone calls because i used to report on events i would go to the scientology events and then go home write a report that night so i was fresh in my mind and they would, so they would call me to find out if I had attended an event. I must have been on a list. And yeah, I was at the event in New Haven. Oh yeah, I was up at the event in Norwich. So what I, what I did is I had a friend of mine in Europe attend the event. And then he would tell me all about it and I would report it as if I had been there. I see. So now they, they're like, hey, did you go to that event? No, I, I couldn't go. You know, my kid was sick. So now they're like, oh, well, maybe it's not Patty. So I would do that every so often is have this other person report on the event to me. And um, that kept them going for a while. And then eventually they had a, a Scientologist who they were blackmailing um, it, it befriend me. And uh, she ended up, I ended up telling her who I was and she ended up reporting it to OSA. So then they came after me. They, uh, they put up one of their hate pages on, uh, what's it called? 
Back then, it was called Religious Freedom Watch, right? Freedom Watch, yeah. They gave me my own special hate page. They printed my bankruptcy paper. They twisted a lot. I mean, some of the stuff they said was true, but it was a twist to make it look like I was, you know, no good. And and you know, I wore it as a badge of honor. It didn't. I used to I used to give that link out all the time because it was like, you know what? Bring it on. I don't care. I'm going to speak out because you guys are no good, and you cannot. There's nothing you can do to hurt me. You know, I, I won't allow it. You know, my family was already out, so I didn't have to worry about that. Like, my, my husband and my son didn't want anything to do with Scientology. So it's just me, and, and I just, I couldn't imagine, what can you do? Follow me around, or like I said in that, in that day, what are you going to do? Call up my boss and tell him I blew up a planet? You know, it's, it's, you know, it's ridiculous. So I, I stood out at knowing that um, I was one of the worst of the worst as far as being a, Osa person. And uh, I had to really eat that, you know, I had to really deal with that. And I guess, um, again, that's why I did so much to work to destroy them because they, uh, they had it coming. Well, and then, um, so that talk at the pub was in 2008. When did the SP parties begin that summer? Yeah, I think they did. I had a Originally, it was my little IRC group with, you know, Dave and and uh, Katie and Scott and a few others. I think maybe even Chuck was there, and I was giving out little rewards. But after that, it started, I wanted to invite more and more people, and uh, it just got bigger and bigger. And, you know, we ended up with lobsters and steak and, you know, the pool, and everybody was having it. Was, it was so much fun. And... I really didn't get to enjoy it so much because I was running it. I remember you were very stressed. You were working way too hard at your own party. Yeah, so I I, I was thinking I need a party planner because I didn't really get to talk to people, but I spent a lot of time making sure people were talking with each other and having fun. And uh, anyway, those those it just got it got too big at at one point, and it needed uh, the last one was just like just got too crazy for me. So I decided to, to back off for a while. Who knows, maybe maybe I'll get together with some in the future. Well, you have your HowdyCon, maybe. Well, I have to say, I think it partly inspired HowdyCon. Uh, so, because your last SP party was around 2012 or 13, right? Yep. And my first HowdyCon was 2016, and we held it in Cleveland. And not only did Professor Turetsky come, he flew in in his own plane. Yeah, he flew into my parties in his own plane too. So cool. And he brought some people from from Pennsylvania with him. I think he stopped and picked up a few people. He's yeah, Dave Dave actually not many people know Dave had that plane, but what he used to do is he on his own dime, he would deliver um, organs from organ donors from one hospital from Pittsburgh from all over the country. He'd fly and deliver those organs to people for transplants. And uh, never, never took a dime for it. Just did it out, out of goodness, and that's the type of guy he was. But Scientology tried to destroy him and tried to make him look like a. Well, they did. <laughs> they hated him. But I talked to Dave a lot, and one of the things Dave told me when I was, I would be worried about something. He, I know it just sounds kind of strange, but he would say the only way to handle these guys, and I'm not talking about specific Scientologists, that has to be a nice thing. But on the organization, the only way to handle these guys is with ridicule. 
is just look down and say, really, you know, look at look at how stupid you are for doing this. And um, don't give them any sort of power or any sort of like, wow, these guys, you know, these guys are really cool. They can do a lot of stuff legally. No, no, no. You know, just put a just like and once I adopted that viewpoint, I, I sort of became um, not afraid of them anymore or I, not that I was ever really afraid of them. But uh, I always had a thing about bullies and they were just the worst of the bullies that I'd ever dealt with. And I just decided, nah, let's take these guys on. This is going to be make it fun. <laughs> and I did. Well, you sure did. I mean, the Tom Cruise video alone should put you in the Hall of Fame. And then, of course, uh, for example, another thing I think that you're responsible for, um, because I, as part of Christie's database, you were putting in magazines. And, and I'm, I'm pretty sure you're the source for some of the early magazines that laid out the statuses for donations. Yeah. So when when on the underground bunker you see me say oh they're gold meritorious that means they gave a million dollars it's patty <laughs> that we have oh because you found those original document publications where they laid that all out because today they don't see today no. they're more careful and so they will they will just say gold and assume that scientology knows what they're talking about but back in the day you provided copies of the magazines where it said Gold meritorious equals $1 million in donations. Right. And that's how, for example, I learned that Tom Cruise was the first platinum meritorious, which is a donation of $2.5 million. Wow. It, was a, it was a magazine that you had found. Impact. And you had put online and showed up. Because you can still go that, you know, I, every once in a while I'll be searching around and I'll find one of these old postings uh, at the WWP um, um, forums and there'll be a list of all these donation statuses and people who've donated. And sure enough, it'll be Patty is the person who posted it. Yeah, well, again, that kind of information, at the time, it, it just seemed like, okay, let's just throw this out here. But I knew, based on how much money they were collecting, that this is gonna be good information. And I, again, I always, I always thought of journalists or reporters or TV people, because I used to get contacted quite a bit once I became um, publicly known. Again, I would I was sending out uh, CDs of all kinds of stuff to everybody, hope in hopes that they use it, or at least be educated by it. Yeah, I mean it's it's I don't know how you can see that Tom Cruise video and not realize there's something very wrong about this right. group, you know. Yeah, yeah, and it's, it's it's infamous, you know. Yeah, so. <laughs> no, it's, people watch it and just their mouths hang open. They, they, they can't believe. <laughs> That this guy is like this, you know, it's like, wow, look at this dude, because he has such a different personality. His public personality is so different. Right. So uh, what's what's the latest, Patty? I haven't talked to you a whole lot lately. What's been going on? Well, I'm sort of I put on my profile. I'm a semi-retired merchant of chaos. I still enjoy um, reading up about Scientology. I know the Daily Beast sometimes I think they they read your article and then then write stuff about it. Uh, I sort of keep up, but I don't really do all the work that I used to do. Um, I certainly will pass on information if I have it. But um, I, I sort of I'm sitting back and watching them really just disappear slowly but surely. They're just dying off, uh, especially after COVID. 
but you knew it was going to happen. I mean, you got a, an organization with a 1950s viewpoint of the world. Um, that's just not going to work. You got lies. You got uh, big money being going in, and and all this abuse that's taking place with with the Sea Org and, and the staff. It's just it's such an abusive organization. It's sometimes sometimes I read stuff and it's almost too painful. I I can't read it because I've been there. I don't want I don't want that anymore. But I generally want to know what's going on with the, the lawsuits and uh, and keeping it in. Anytime I see anything I can contribute, an opinion or, or give a uh, some background data if I was involved, I, I try to contribute that just because sometimes those little nuggets are, are important. But um, no, I'm just sort of being a grandma these days and having fun. Well, I always enjoy it when I see that you commented at the Underground Bunker because you have a wicked sense of humor. <laughs> Thank you. I tend to, I tend to be a little bit irreverent with them, don't I? It's just like, yeah, it's like, I, it's because I, I have so little tolerance of them now, and I, and I pick it up sometimes with your voice, and you make me laugh when I read your stuff. I know, I know where you're going with it, and, it's, <laughs> and, and that's what's so important because you, you of all the wogs in the world have the best understanding of Scientology than anybody else. You really understand. You can think like them. You know how they think. And you can, that is so important when communicating with, with people who are getting out or trying to leave. The fact that you have that much understanding, it's, it's amazing. Well, thank you. Thank you. But, you know, it's brave people like you that have brought out information. And, and I'm so glad that um, you have gotten uh, as much credit as you have, I think you deserve a lot more. But uh, you know, there are other people who have risked a lot to get out information that will never identify themselves. And I, I, I wish people knew how much the chances those people have taken. There are other people that have just done wonderful work, yep, getting us the information out uh, because this is a litigious, vindictive, bullying organization. Yep. That does not like people knowing what's going on behind closed doors. But we today know so much more, mm -hmm. in particular because of you, Patty. Well, thank you so much. I I understand why people don't want to necessarily give up because Scientology has, you know, these guys have all been audited and Scientology knows what's in their background. And, you know, while they want to expose the cult, they don't want to necessarily have their indiscretions brought up, which Scientology will do. And uh, again, I didn't have enough indiscretions, apparently, other than bankruptcy that they they could mess with me on. So uh, I, I I had no no real fear of them after after a while. It took it took me a while not to be afraid of them because that fear was so ingrained. But um, yeah, I'm so happy that people, whether they do it anonymously or not, I I appreciate. All the you know the the recent insider person you have that they're given great information that keeps us up on what's going on. I wish I had one of those insights. <laughs> well, and I just have one more memory I want to share. I was in your backyard having some corn on the cob and lobster, and somebody I don't even remember who now brought me some documents while I was sitting there. Said you might want to see some. Because that was another thing that was going on at your parties was people were there to share information. 
And um, I think I think that was the time I brought Paulette Cooper with me. And Paulette and I were going through some interesting documents somebody had given us. And that's where I found the interview with six-year-old Neil Gaiman. Oh, yeah, that's right. I had a folder. I had a big box and people were going through it for stuff. Somebody found, yeah, I, something I had collected over the year. And when, when Neil was six, uh, Scientology was really going through a tough period in England, and Parliament was thinking of kicking them out. And so Scientology wanted to produce an example of how good Scientology is for its members, even a six-year-old child. And this, you know, uh, this, this, this kid, this brilliant little kid, um, actually did a BBC interview about his, you know, what he had learned in Scientology. And then Scientology took the transcript of that and put it in a pamphlet to distribute to, to members of parliament to try to sway them. Yep. And uh, I first learned about that uh, sitting in your backyard, Patty. So that's how great <laughs> your parties were. Eventually someone actually, BBC, and I remember I wrote to the BBC saying, please, Search your archives. We've got to get the audio for this. They never responded to me, but about a year later, they found it, mm. and they and they put some of it on the air. Neil Gaiman, of course, today is one of the world's most famous fantasy science fiction authors. He right. is no longer in Scientology, but all of his family still is, so he's careful about what he says. Right. But anyway, I just wanted to share that because that's one of my treasured memories from being <laughs> in your backyard at the great parties. Yep. Well, yeah. well, Patty, thank you so much. Thank you, Your dear. story is amazing. And uh, I hope people get a chance to look at this video that you relocated. And I hope uh, you hear some fun things in the comments. Great. Thanks a lot, Tone. Really appreciate it. All right. Talk to you later. I'll reckoning